0: This is an ABC podcast. It's this horrible or wonderful Catch-22 where the things that you most wish would stay forever disappear and the things that you most wish would go away are just everywhere.
1: Often we think, oh, I've digitized that, that's it, that's preserved, I can walk away from that, it'll be safe for the future. But look, everybody today knows how fast technology moves on. So just because it's digital doesn't mean that it's being preserved forever.
2: This whole world that we are living in right now, a world that we would obviously like to give to posterity, that we would like to provide for the history of the future, that we would like to provide for cultures of the future to build on, might be more inaccessible than any dead
3: civilization. The cliche is that once something goes up online, it's up there forever. That embarrassing photo your friend snapped while you were drunkenly stumbling around, or that naively inappropriate comment you posted on a social media platform when you were 15 and feeling kind of angry with the world. Remember? Sure you do. The one that got shared 450,000 times. It's all up there forever. But of course, it's not. The internet has a memory problem, and some of what we're losing, or could potentially lose, has significance and value. (music) Hello, Anthony Fennell here. Welcome to Future Tense, and a show about archives, archivists and the growing challenges of preserving the digital record. Let's start with Harvard Law School and research they've just conducted into what's called link rot. Claire Stanton.
4: So we were very lucky to work with the digital team at the New York Times, and they shared all of the externally facing hyperlinks that had been used on their website, newyorktimes.com since 1996 when it first launched. And externally facing, I mean, websites that were not newyorktimes.com or to a social media site that is controlled by the Times. So this is like a citation or a find out more information type of URL. There were over 2 million of those. 72% of them were what we call deep links, which is, for example, a URL that looks something like newyorktimes.com slash article versus just the general website, newyorktimes.com. When a journalist uses a deep link, it's to point someone to really specific information. It's important for their argument in the article. And we basically wrote a script that opened every single one of those hyperlinks to see if there was still content at the other end.
3: And that's where the idea of rot comes in, a link that once took you somewhere, but now only leads to a 404 error message. So what did Claire and her colleagues find after all that digging around?
4: Of those deep links, 25% of them had a 404 error. So there was nothing at the other end of that link. And it got worse over time. So in 2018, articles from that time, only 6% of the links had rotted. But as you go backwards, 43% of links from 2008 were completely gone. And 72% of them from 1998 were completely gone. And then the kind of big number that we saw was that of all of the articles that contained a deep link at all, over half of them had one rotted link in it.
3: Were your findings consistent with previous studies looking at that link rot?
4: They were. So this is a study that is very similar to one also conducted by one of the co-authors of this study back in 2014, looking at the legal field. So... Specifically, there are journals, student journals written at our law school, at the Harvard Law School, that use a lot of citation. And then also the Supreme Court, in their opinions, on occasion, use URLs. That study similarly found that over half of the links in the Supreme Court's opinions that they publish, which are part of our law, were rotted. And it was even worse for our law journals, which is a huge part of our academic record, That was almost 70% of those links were completely gone.
3: Why does link rot occur? What, What does your research suggest?
4: Well, there's lots of reasons that something on the internet could be different from the time that someone published a link. When it's a really hard 404 error, like we were talking about, that link not found, it could be something like the person who was maintaining that website stopped paying for the domain and the website just completely goes down that's kind of an extreme case. Another reason that it could happen is something that's just kind of inevitable in part of the way that the internet works, which is that it's kind of a living document. A really good example that I use a lot of the time is in the United States, when we have turnover in the presidential administration, the website for whitehouse.gov, which will always be theoretically the most up-to-date information about what's going on in the White House, gets handed over to a completely new set of people. And they do an overhaul of the content of that website and of the structure of how, you know, the different sections of policy positions of the president at that time. So a link from President Obama's whitehouse.gov that might appear in a New York Times article is inevitably going to rot when a new administration takes over and completely overhauls the website. So it's this thing with the internet that... Really, one of the strengths of the web is that it can change, it can be updated. It's where you find the best and newest information. But because of that, there is this instability within the fundamental
3: structure itself. So, link rot, I mean, it can be positive, as you say, in terms of updating, because we want the web obviously to be dynamic can be uh, very annoying for people, particularly researchers and journalists. But you and uh, your colleagues argue, don't you, that there's also a collective memory issue here for society. How so?
4: There have been people working in the cultural heritage and archival world for a very long time to preserve the historic record. And they have wonderful policies and procedures and ways that they preserve what is happening so that it can be studied in the future. I think the reality of the internet and our continued reliance on, like I was describing this living document, is that the pace of the need for that preservation is so much faster. There's really a danger that as link rot becomes more prevalent, which as we learned, it simply will just because of time there's going to be this hole in our historical record when archivists and librarians can't get to this content quick enough to save it and preserve it for the future. So we think that there really should be some work done between the folks who are writing the historical record and the folks who are preserving the historical record to bring some of that archival practice and some of that thought about preserving things into the future a little bit farther up in the workflow. So. If journalists are working with librarians from the day that they write that article, the likelihood that we'll be able to capture and preserve all of their citations in the moment skyrockets because we're doing it at the time and it's there for when we're looking back at the historical record.
0: My name is Rebecca Lynn Cremona and I'm a senior developer at Harvard Law School's Library Innovation Lab. My job is to keep an eye on the websites that people are trying to preserve for the publications that they are writing, for their scholarly works, or for their own convenience, and see if the existing web technology is capable of capturing them in great enough detail, and then presenting visitors after the fact with a reliable picture of what we recorded. Can you save a website and get it back? And if not, working on finding out why and working on improving the web archiving tech to evolve and continue to advance along with the rest of, you know, the lightning speed of the internet.
3: So the Harvard Library Innovation Lab has developed a tool to try and limit the frustration and damage caused by link rot. It's called PERMA. It's a kind of backup URL system.
0: Right, so for example, recently, PERMA CC was used by both sides In the impeachment hearings for former President Donald Trump, both sides were using PERMA to make copies of government documents and government websites in which certain political positions were stated or certain language was used about immigration or perhaps something that various associates of President Trump or President Trump himself said on Twitter that then were removed or taken down or altered by the time of the trial. PERMA had copies from the moment before that happened, and so both sides were able to make the cases that they intended to without worrying about their information having literally evaporated from the Internet.
3: Now, if you're talking about PERMA as a, as a kind of backup, it itself is going to be enormous, isn't it?
0: Yes, and uh, so we do have, I think at this point, at least a couple terabytes of data and that will only increase. But something that's excellent for PERMA is that storage is, generally speaking, the cheapest part of our process. The hardest part of maintenance and keeping it going is in fact maintaining the software and keeping it up to date and making sure that it can handle the latest and greatest of what the web can throw at us. And PERMA is needle-focused and we only preserve exactly a page that a user requests. And so because of that, we're able to make a smaller, more focused collection that helps keep the overall storage size a little bit more manageable.
3: That issue of needing to preserve the software. People don't tend to think of that. They do tend to think of just the the storage of data. They don't think about the software that you actually need to be able to access it over time or for it to still be relevant.
0: Yeah, sure. I think that's one of the most interesting problems and interesting things to work on in the web archiving space right now. Our friends at WebRecorder, webrecorder.net, have taken a really interesting angle on this and they have a service called Old Web Today that allow you to look at web archives in operating systems computers and web browsers that are no longer available so netscape from the 90s what did a web page actually look like when you visited from netscape one reason that this is super important for the world's technologists to focus on these kind of old web today technologies is because So many technologies are becoming obsolete. Like, who doesn't remember playing and seeing fascinating things in Adobe Flash just a few years ago? And beautiful artwork created in Flash and interactive elements and news stories that were presented that way. And most of today's computers literally will not, cannot play you back Flash So even if the best archive, the best recording in the world had been produced, using today's tech without special software wouldn't even let you see that. So there's a lot to do to curate these collections and make sure that kind of like the climate controlled archives where paper art is kept, that these digital web archives are in fact staying in a state that can be enjoyed by the future readers.
1: Often we think, I've digitised that, you know, that's it, that's preserved, I can walk away from that, it'll be safe for the future. But look, everybody today knows how fast technology moves on.
3: David Fricker, Director-General of the National
1: Archives of Australia. As soon as you've digitised something, in an archival sense, you have to keep preserving it. So preservation is an ongoing task to make sure that you're constantly checking that digital material to make sure that it hasn't degraded or it hasn't become unreadable. And every, you know, five to 10 years as the technology cycles move on and generations of technology change, we have to migrate digital
3: information from one format to the next. And that constant game of catch-up is enormously expensive, particularly for a publicly funded organisation. Recently, the National Archives received $67 million in emergency funding to help digitise decaying records. But that preservation effort has to be married, says David Fricker, to a vigilance for keeping up to date with technological complexity.
1: This is what we're going through, isn't it, in society, is, you know, we all talk about artificial intelligence and AI and we, we are seeing all of the devices we use, you know, becoming much more intelligent than they used to be. You know, our cars are now making more decisions that the drivers used to make back in the old days. But it's also happening with government. And so the government of Australia, the way you and I as citizens receive public services from our government is increasingly down to the algorithms that are used, so the tax office will automate more and more of our tax return process. Social uh, welfare benefit payments are being calculated based on algorithms, calculations based on whatever information they can gather about you or me, information about society as a whole. And so our rights and our entitlements as citizens and residents are becoming more and more reliant on the accuracy of those programs and those algorithms that government is using. And so if we are going to record a memory in Australia that can show us the extent to which we have received our proper rights and entitlements, then now we need to record more than just the pages of text that have been sent to us, but we need to record those algorithms, those executable objects that have determined the benefits, the services that we've received. That's a new front for us. It's it's quite a new area that we've got to think about archiving. But, you know, I, I maintained if we're going to provide a, a proper authentic, complete memory of the government of Australia, we have to remember the those functions that have been automated. But I'd like to say this though, you know, at the National Archives, we don't exist all alone. You know, we operate alongside other national institutions, like the National Library, the Film and Sound Archives, the National Museum, et cetera. And all of us, if you like, are memory institutions working together to provide Australians with that, you know, that cultural identity, you know, a real sense of who we are as a nation, what we know, what information we can share, and how we face the future. So I think significantly in the future we are going to see a lot more of that collaboration across the institutions. and I think that's with with you know new technologies that we've been discussing, like digital technologies, there's real opportunities for us to to work together across those institutions, providing the very best outcome for Australia. David Fricker.
3: back at the Harvard Library Innovation Lab, Rebecca Cremona also argues for a reassessment of the way we visualise and talk about the digital world.
0: We call them web pages as though it's something you could look at like in a book or a website as though you could visit it and kind of browse and explore at your leisure. But in reality, it's really more like being present at a live performance in a theater where you know a whole bunch of actors and stagehands and costumes and lights are all combining to kind of give you this moment, this experience of what do you see in your web browser when you visit that website at that point in time. And it really is, it's unique to sometimes your location, to who you are, to what computer you're using and what size screen. And we have to capture all of that if we want a really good record of what you saw in the moment, what you were trying to preserve. And so trying to make a truly high-fidelity web archive can be quite the challenge. My understanding is that traditional archiving dealt with a series of, of concrete media where you could be said to possess the thing that you're trying to archive once you've obtained it, whereas we're talking about information communicated between... A web server or a series of web servers and then delivered to your computer and then code transforms it into either pixels that you see on your screen or information that's read to you aloud by your screen reader and so there's no object there to archive there's only the communication back and forth
4: Life is, Run is by a problem. Is it because there's something talk to yeah. some people that Thank I disagree with deeply on a, really a personal level, but share, I still yeah. have a great yeah. conversation about that.
5: Now your t-shirt will be made to or order based on your... I am Clifford Lynch. I am the director of the uh, Coalition for Networked Information based in Washington, D.C.
3: And just like Rebecca Cremona, Clifford Lynch is fascinated by the prospect of archiving the experiential side of the web for all its challenges.
5: Starting in, oh, maybe the late 90s, it became commonplace to talk about web archiving. If you look at the web at that time, the web was actually a very static place. There were websites, they were largely handcrafted at the time, and they were simply digital pages of HTML with some perhaps embedded images. Now, the web is, in fact, just a sort of a carrier for a huge number of very different and highly varied services. If you think about it, you can participate in social media through a web interface You can also do it, of course, on your phone through an app. You can stream music through a web interface. You can go shopping on Amazon through a web interface. All of these things are fundamentally very different interactive services. And the notion of archiving those in the same way you archived a relatively static website that someone might update every few days in the late 1990s really doesn't apply anymore.
3: But are such online interactions and incidental or even trivial digital connections actually worth preserving? What benefit is there for society in capturing and archiving the minutia of everyday online life?
5: Well, I think that part of it is just they open so much more possibility and so much more richness. You know, if you think about the work of historians, which of course relies heavily on archives. Very few lives historically have been documented, and they tended to be the powerful, the wealthy, very, very small slices of society. And in fact, historians, I would say, and this is a broad generalization, have become much more interested in the last 50 years, so years in trying to understand the life of just regular people in all walks of life in the societies of the past. And they've looked very hard to try and find records and documentation and things that can help them understand those lives. And depending on the historical period, often not that much survived. Now you see people in all walks of life capturing things they see, things they experience in short videos and posting them. And the richness of that record is just astounding. You know, when you think about catastrophes that occur or major events, protests, hurricanes or floods, the extent of the documentation of that today is just tremendous. Now this, I think, does genuinely create a challenge for future historians, sociologists, and other scholars, as well as just people who want to understand the past on a non-professional basis about how do we manage this wealth of information, which is just so huge that nobody can go through it all anymore. So I I think that we're seeing a lot of very interesting thinking now about, well, now that we have this amazing thing, how do we really think about exploiting it and learning from it?
0: You're with Future Tense on RN, ABC Radio National, exploring the world around us, looking for the pathways ahead and signposting the future
3: perils of preservation and the agonies of archiving in the modern technological world. That's our topic today. I'm Antony Fennell. Finally, to one of the first and the biggest web archivers of them all. Hi, my name is Mark Graham. I'm the director
2: of the Wayback Machine at the Internet Archive. Today, we archive more than a billion URLs a day. There are nearly 600 billion web pages that have been archived in the Wayback Machine. And this is all to serve a a mission. The mission of the Internet Archive is universal access to all knowledge. The mission of the Wayback Machine project is to help make the web more useful and reliable by working really hard every day to back up as much of the public web as is reasonably possible.
3: The Internet Archive was first established back in the mid-1990s, and since then it's overcome many difficulties in trying to fulfil its self-proposed mission. For much of the first part of this century, the online world was a reasonably open place, but not so much anymore. In the past decade, says Mark Graham, political and commercial reasons have combined to make the work of the archive and its Wayback Machine all the more difficult. The top
2: 20-some news sites, at least in the West, in, in America, in Europe, almost every single one of them, The Guardian would be an exception, is paywalled. In some fashion, some of these sites may allow you to see three or five articles a month per IP number or something like that, but more and more... Quality information that's vitally important to a healthy society is locked behind a paywall. I did a Google search last week for treatment for COVID, and the first three search results that came up from news sites across the top, all three of them were behind a paywall. The flip side of that is true as well, which is that information which may not be researched, may not be vetted, in fact, may be and often is, mis- and disinformation is free. So we have a very unhealthy situation going on right now in the world. This has been evolving over the last many years and it's getting worse and worse. Another dimension of it is apps. You know, We all love our, our iPhones and our Android devices and the apps on them are so convenient and easy to use, but they're locked down. One can't often, almost always, can't get access to what's inside of those apps, outside of the apps. If I'm using Apple News, for example, well, first of all, many things within Apple News take me to a site that's paywalled. That's one thing. The other thing is even the articles themselves that are in Apple News and most certainly how those articles are prioritized and grouped together and positioned within context, that's unique to that app. And if one can't access that through kind of an open standard or in a fashion that could be recorded, that could be examined over time. Then we actually don't have any kind of understanding of that information flow, and you know our views of the world of what's true and important uh, through closed platforms or through
3: applications. With the paywalls, then are you able to negotiate with the news organizations to get access for your archive? Now we're in conversation with some
2: news organizations, but it's um, this is something that it's really hard for multiple reasons. But the first thing is you know, negotiate to do what, right? To, I mean, maybe to archive these for future generations, maybe to embargo this information for five years or 10 years or something like that. Because there is a legitimate need for news organizations to bring in revenue. And right now, much of the revenue is through subscriptions and through advertising. But yeah, we, we are in conversation with some, but maybe there's other models too. Like maybe we should at least have an ability to, to know that something exists to to be able to access metadata about it and to be able to reference it some fashion, some sort of fair use access. I mean, I don't know. I'm just hypothesizing here. I will say that this is something that I'm putting a fair amount of time into and I welcome anyone's ideas or opportunities for collaboration. I think it's a a fairly existential threat to the very nature of how we in our society are getting access to information uh, and perspectives that are crucial for us to be able to make good, informed, uh, and healthy decisions.
3: And, and for your archive, it means there are black spots, doesn't it? Oh yeah, absolutely, it, it does. I mean,
2: there are other ways. Sometimes material may be paywalled for some period of time, and then after that period of time has passed, it may be publicly available. It's a complicated topic. We're diving deep into the research about that right now. You now the web is technically very fragile often the the information only lives in one place maybe on one server the business environment political environment will change over time a company is often only interested in what's going to happen tomorrow or getting out tomorrow's version of the news and the archives are an afterthought. There was a study by the Columbia Journalism Review looking at the top 20 news organizations in the United States and almost none of them had any kind of formal digital archiving program in place. So we wanna be, you know, a people that are able to learn from our history, learn from our mistakes, to be able to understand where we've come from and the context of modern day events. Then it's critically important that we have access to our history. I think of it as a responsibility that we have to preserve our cultural heritage and help inform future generations.
3: Preserving the past and the present to the benefit of the future. We heard today on Future Tense from Mark Graham at the Internet Archive, David Fricker from the National Archives of Australia, Claire Stanton and Rebecca Cremona from the Harvard Law School, and Clifford Lynch at the Coalition for Networked Information. Karin Savanovic is my colleague and co-producer. I'm Anthony Fennell.
4: You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.